0: Places and brand new things, gotta go places and do things, baby, to forget you. I gotta stop feeling so low down, starting stepping and seeing the town, gotta go places and do things, baby, to forget you. Hello, and welcome back to Weird Comics History, episode number 25. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history, sporadically. On yeah. some weekdays, when we have it, usually in post. You can find us <laughs> on Sundays, our show at Cosmic Treadmill, on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, and iHeartRadio. And this episode has been a long, long time coming, Chris, as you know. It sure uh, has. I came just in time to miss the 100th anniversary of the person in question... <laughs> <laughs> uh, celebration that went on last year in 2017 But I have wanted to talk about this guy for quite a while And that's probably why it's taken a long time to complete The fellow we're talking about is Will Eisner And we're just going to jump right into it, folks William Irwin Will Eisner, born March 16, March 6, 1917 In Brooklyn, New York City uh, Eisner's father, Schmuel Samuel Eisner Was one of 11 children from Kolomia, Austria-Hungary He was an artistic painter by trade Eisner's mother, Fanny Ingber, was a Romanian, born on a ship bound for the U.S. in 1891. The family introduced Samuel and Fanny, who were distant relatives, and then they had three children. Irwin, or William, was the eldest. The Eisner family grew up poor and moved frequently, and Will says he was subject to anti-Semitism as a child. Though he never denied his Jewish heritage, he turned away from it when when the family was denied entry to a synagogue due to lack of money when he was a kid. Uh, as we will see, though, later on, he became to he came to embrace it, at least culturally, later on, and never denied the fact. Eisner was a tall, sturdy young man, but he disliked athleticism. Instead, he preferred to read pulp science fiction and detective magazines. His father encouraged his artistic interest. Remember, he was a painter by trade. But his mother... Who had come been born on a boat uh, didn't didn't appreciate that. Uh, she definitely impressed upon Will that he had to do something that was going to make a living. Uh, Samuel and Fanny in fact, fought frequently about money and Samuel moving from job to job for income. good old artistic painter by trade.
1: Mm -hmm. Now following the uh, Crash on Wall Street in 1929 And the Great Depression that followed Things would get desperate Uh, Fanny told Will at the ripe old age of 13 That he would have to find a way to help Contribute to the family And so he began selling newspapers on the street Which was a highly competitive job That required a certain toughness Uh, Will attended DeWitt Clinton High School Then on 59th Street and 10th Avenue In Manhattan Along with about a hundred other names From the early days of comic (laughs) books I, I know we've said it at least yeah
0: a dozen it, times yeah it, it seems like if you had worked in the Golden Age you had to go to DeWitt Clinton at least for <laughs> a couple of years
1: yes now uh, will would draw for the school newspaper the Clintonian uh, the school literary magazine the magpie and for the yearbook. Following graduation, Will studied under Canadian artist George Brandt Bridgman for a year at the Art Students League of New York. Uh, George Brandt Bridgman, uh, who passed away in 1943, was a Canadian-American painter, writer, and teacher in the fields of anatomy and figure drawing. Uh, Bridgman uh, taught anatomy for classes at the Art Students League of New York City for some 45 years, and one of his students was a fellow named Norman Rockwell.
0: Yeah, this guy was huge in the time in caricature drawing. He was like the, uh, you know, last word in drawing form and... anatomy. So it was somewhat of a big deal that he was able to be under his tutelage. Speaking of the Art Students League, that was an art school in New York located on West 57th Street in Manhattan, New York City. Founded in 1875. We have talked about it sometimes. Although artists may study full-time, there have never been any degree programs or grades. And the informal attitude pervades the culture of the school. So Will really had a type of apprenticeship under George Bridgman. It wasn't so much him sitting in a classroom as it was him probably sitting side by side learning how to use materials and stuff. Uh, Contacts Will made at Art Students League Led to a position as an advertising writer Cartoonist for the New York American newspaper He also drew $10 10, $10 a page illustrations For pulp magazines including Western Sheriffs and Outlaws Which is the name of one magazine Not two Mm In 1936 Mm -hmm. Bob Kane A fellow alumnus of DeWitt Clinton High School Suggested that the 19 year old Eisner Try selling cartoons to the new comic book Wow what a magazine
1: yeah, so let's talk about comics. You know, we could bring this history back to the mid-19th century, but for the purposes of illustrating Eisner's life, we're going to begin with Dell Publishing, founded and operated by George D. George T. Delacorte Jr. They produced the Funnies in 1929, a 16-page pulp paper periodical of original comic strip styled material. It was described by the Library of Congress as a short-lived newspaper tabloid insert. Uh, historian Rob Ron Goulart uh, described it uh, as quote a more more a Sunday comic section without the rest of the newspaper than a true comic book. Uh, we got to remember this because it will become important in Eisner's late later life. Now our story begins in earnest in 1933 When Eastern Color Printing published Funnies on Parade is another newsprint tabloid of eight pages It was composed of several comic strips Licensed from the McNaughton Syndicate And reprinted in color Uh, They included popular strips as uh, Al Smith's Mutt and Jeff Ham Fish's Joe Palooka, and Percy Crosby's Skippy. uh, Neither sold nor available on newsstands, this was sent free as a promotional item to customers who mailed in coupons clipped from the Procter & Gamble soap and toiletries products.
0: Now, later in 1933, Eastern Color salesperson Maxwell Gaines and sales manager Harry I. Waldenberg collaborated with George Delacorte of Dell Publishing to produce the 36-page one-shot Famous Funnies, a carnival of comics. This is considered by most to be the first real comic book in that it had a glossy cover and was saddle-stapled. It wasn't just folded and uh, slapped out there. Originally sold to Woolworths, but, you know, Chris, it's always been unclear to me as to whether they were meant as a freebie, promotional item, or intended. There seems to be two stories here. Uh, There's no price on the cover... One legend has it that Max Gaines stickered each copy with a $0.10 cents tag before shipping. And another legend has it that Woolworth was caught selling these comics that were intended as promotional items. Hmm. Somebody, somewhere somebody charged for them. The truth is somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. somewhere in there. <laughs> but the point is, they, they sold. They moved and quickly. They went, yeah. And they saw they had something here. So, when Delacorte def- declined to continue with Famous Funnies, a carnival of comics, Eastern Color published Famous Funnies number one. Cover dated July 1934. And that was a 68-page giant selling for $0.10. Cents. Mm. Uh, distributed to newsstands now by the mammoth American news company, approved to hit with readers, selling 90% of its 200,000-copy print run. Uh, although this put Eastern color more than 4000 in the red. That changed quickly, though, with the series turning a $30,000 profit, each issue starting with number 12 in July 1935. So it took about a year to get going, but eventually Solent, yeah. <laughs> it, it got going. Uh, famous Forty would eventually run 218 issues until 1955 and inspired many imitators, which was part of the problem. Publishers soon ran out of comic strips that, that they were republishing, and they were looking for new material to fill this massive demand, and it was about to explode beyond you know, anybody's imaginations in about a year from what we're talking about here. Uh, this is the situation that Bob Kane related to Will Eisner on the street one day.
1: Mm-hmm. So in 1936 Wow what a magazine editor Jerry Iger bought an Eisner adventure Strip called Captain Scott Dalton Eisner would subsequently write And draw the pirate, sh- the pirate Strip The Flame and the Secret agent stripped Harry Carey for Wow as well now during this Time Eisner said that a man described As a mob type straight out Of Damon Runyon complete with pinky Ring broken nose black shirt and white Tie who claimed to have Quote exclusive distribution rights for all Brooklyn asked Eisner to draw Tijuana Bibles for $3 a page now if you remember from uh, our underground uh, series here, yep. Tijuana Bibles were 8 page pornographic comics printed at around 3 by 8 inches Now, most cartoonists would get $5 a page legitimately. Uh, At $3 for what is essentially a third of a page, Eisner would stand to double his money. Uh, Eisner said he declined the offer. He described the decision as one of the most difficult moral decisions of my life.
0: (laughs) Wow. Uh, yeah, I, uh, what, what you know, we could have had some very high quality uh, Tijuana Bibles yeah, had it gone sure the other way, have. but nope, we didn't.
1: Now, <laughs> now no, that that uh, that series wow would last four issues, uh, cover dated July through September and uh, November 1936. Now out of a job, Eisner asked Jerry Iger if he wanted to go into business together. Now, the two were not friends. Uh, indeed, Iger was 14 years older than Eisner. Eisner lied and said he was six years older than he actually was because he was only 19 at the time. Uh, so Iger would you know, take him a little bit more seriously. He wouldn't think he was a joke.
0: Yeah, and and you know it isn't that they were enemies, but they it was a business relationship. They weren't yeah. hanging at each other's houses. Mates, yeah. yeah, they weren't pals like this. That.
1: Wasn't Simon and Kirby? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so uh, the idea was that they would package comics, which is to provide finished pages to publishers for them to insert into their comic books. In 1997, Eisner recounted. We met on 43rd Street, opposite the printing plant of the New York Daily News, just off 3rd Avenue. The only comic books being started were all reprinting daily newspaper comic strips, adventure strips, and it suddenly hit me, out of the blue, that they would run out of supply of these strips very soon. And then there'll be an opportunity to sell original material, drawn especially for these comic books. So we had lunch at this little beanery, and I told Jerry Iger about this idea that I... and said I'd like to form a company with him, and we'd produce the original art for these comic books. He was 13 years older than me, and I figured he was mature, and so he could handle the sales. Iger said, frankly, it's going to take money, and I don't have any money. Uh, I had $15 that I'd just gotten for a commercial job, and I knew about a little building on 41st Street just off Madison Avenue that rented rooms, offices for something like $5 or $10 a month. No lease. They usually rented them to bookies, little one-room things. So I told Jerry, I'll put up the dough. And I'll do all the art, and all you have to do is go out and sell it. We made a deal, shook hands. We agreed to form a corporation, Eisner and Iger, my name first because I was the big money man. <laughs> then
1: in 1985 We have Jerry Iger recalling it a little Bit differently yeah. he says Back in 1937 I'd been producing A lot of material under my own banner This uni- The Universal Phoenix Features in my shop There were some wonderful artists many of whom Worked freelance as on an As needed basis Included were such names as Mort Meskin And Will Eisner Will was working For me doing Hawk of the Seas and ZX5 he also Did sports drawings that I syndicated with My other materials throughout the U.S. Universal Phoenix features had gone into, quote, holding pattern because I had gone into a brief partnership with Will Eisner in mid 1938, only to buy him out in 1940 when Will was drafted into the Army to do military posters. Will had become so accomplished and so expensive as a freelance artist that the only way I could afford his services was to make him a partner. After Eisner and Iger LTD was dissolved, I returned to publishing as Phoenix Features. Now we know for certain that Eisner was drafted in nineteen forty-two, not nineteen forty, although he did leave the company in nineteen forty. And we're gonna explain why in just a bit.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get there. But I you know, I just like to say when we do these parts where we quote the people speaking, which you know we love to do. Remember that they are just running off memory. They're not sitting yeah. with with you know facts and data in front of them. So if their facts don't seem to line up with what we're saying exactly, that's okay. you know, but yeah,
1: they they didn't they didn't think this was going to be kept for posterity. Exactly. this is just
0: work this is just work. so you know, they're they're giving the more anecdotal stuff that we love, but Trust our dates. We have uh, you know checked and double checked, and in some cases triple checked. Uh, in late 1936, they formed Eisner and Iger Studios, also sometimes known as Syndicated Features Corporation. Jerry Iger also handled lettering along with business concerns, at least initially. Early on, Eisner used pseudonyms like Willis Renzi, which is Eisner spelled backwards, very clever, and Irwin, which is his middle name, to give the illusion that the company was well staffed. Hmm. This was possibly the first comic book packager, and it was an immediate hit. Soon, Eisner and Iger had to hire on more help, including some great talents, and we're going to just name a few of the people that went through that office uh, in those years. Lou Fine, born December, uh, sorry, November 26, 1914, died till July 24, 1971. He contracted polio at a young age, leaving his legs virtually crippled for life. In 1938, Lou Fine started working at Eisner and Iger Studios, and his first published work was the strip Wilton of the West in Fiction House's Jumbo Comics number no. 4, December 1938 cover date. He used the pseudonym Fred Sand because this was the pseudonym used by Jack Kirby when he had started the strip. Fine did acclaim work for Fox Features Syndicate supplying the cover to 1939's Blue Beetle No. 1 and drew such features as the flame in Wonder World comics and the self-titled Later series. Because Lou's legs were withered away from having suffered through polio, he worked out his upper body incessantly. It is this podcast conjecture that the extreme strength in his arms... Helped Lou to draw a precise, true lines. We'll hear more about Lou in just a few minutes.
1: Another guy, uh, part of this crew, was Bob Kane. Born Robert Kahn, October 24, 1915. He would pass away November 3, 1998. Now, Bob, as we mentioned, attended DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx with Will Eisner. Uh, and then in 1936, started selling comics to Wow, What a Magazine. And would bring Eisner into the fold. Uh, again, this stuff we've mentioned already. Yeah. Uh, Now, after WoW folded and Eisner owing Bob a good turn, it was therefore logical that he began working for the Eisner-Iger studio in 1937. Now, among his work there was the funny animal feature Peter Pup, published in the U.K. comic magazine Wags, and then reprinted in Fiction House's Jumbo Comics. Kane also produced uh, work through Eisner and Iger for two of the companies that would later merge to form DC Comics. Those companies are All-American and National Periodicals. He included the humor features of Ginger Snap In more fun comics Also Oscar the Gumshoe for Detective Comics And Professor Doolittle for Adventure Comics. Uh, Now, for that last title, he went on to do his first adventure strip, Rusty and His Pals. Uh, Then in 1938, Bob Kane would leave Eisner and Iger for uh, some, uh, you know, baddie idea
0: or another. Yeah, I think he did okay. I can't remember what happened with him.
1: Yeah, he made out. He did
0: all right. Uh, (laughs) Another guy that loomed large in the industry at one time was Bob Powell, born Stanley Robert Pawlowski, uh, October 2nd, 1916, to December 1967. He was born in Buffalo, New York and moved to New York City in the early 1930s Where he studied art at the Pratt Institute Then he went to work for Eisner and Iger. Powell's first published comic book art possibly is the uncredited three-page story A Letter of Introduction featuring the famed ventriloquist Edward Bergen And his dummy Charlie McCarthy in Fiction House's Jumbo Comics No. 2, October 1938 That's right, folks, a comic about a ventriloquist act.
1: And a creepy one at
0: that. And a very creepy one, but that, that, <laughs> that, could, that, that may be only just slightly dumber than the radio show of the Ventriloquist. <laughs> uh, most famously, Powell drew many of the earliest adventures of the Jungle Queen Sheena in Jumbo Comics, and we're going to hear a little story about this guy a little later on, too.
1: Uh, one of the industry giants uh, Jack Kirby was also part of this gang here uh, born Jacob Kurtzberg August 28, 1917 would pass away February 6, 1994 grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City and got his first steady illustration work uh, doing in-betweens for Fleischer Animation in 1939 he quickly move on to the Eisner Eiger shop uh, through that company Kirby did uh, did what he remembers as his first comic book work this was for Wild Boy Magazine and included such strips as The Diary of Dr. Haywood, Wilton of the West, The Count of Monte Cristo, and the humor features Abdul Jones and *Sacco the Sea Dog, all uh, variously uh, for uh, Jumbo Comics and other Eisner Eiger clients. Uh, he first used the surname Kirby as a, a pseudonym, a pseudonym uh, Lance Kirby in two Lone Rider Western stories in Eastern color printings, Famous Funnies, issues 63 and 64. Those was October, November 1939 cover dates. Then in 1940, Jack would team up with a fellow named Joe Simon. And they wound up working together. Uh, mm-hmm. They they might have created some some guy.
0: They did some things, and uh, they probably made out okay, too. I think they did okay. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so working at the Eisner and Eiger studio was a salaried position. You came to the office, you sat at the art table, and worked all day before going home. During the Depression, many preferred that steady income as opposed to the potentially more lucrative but less secure option of freelancing. Also, being employed in this way did away with any copyright arguments. Artists did not work for hire, so Eisner and Iger owned all work, or whatever the specifics of the deal with their publisher dictated, but the creator was, you know, working on company time, so that was it. Uh, To save money, Eisner got sable inking brushes from Japan, two cents cheaper than the preferred brand. The only problem is they didn't snap back like brushes from the U.K. and the U.S. they were used to getting. They would kind of lie limp. You had to, you know, learn to finesse them. So the office would sometimes have a contest. Someone would draw a line using a Japanese brush, and then everyone had to try to go over that line with the same brush without wavering or making the line thicker at any point. And Eisner remembers that only Lou Fine could do this, probably because his upper body was so built. He could just control mm. this limp brush, you know? And, and I like it. it probably like... You know, inking versus painting a house. You know what I mean? It's like sure. laying one of these brushes down. You can imagine, it's just, you know, you, you learn how to use it, but you just don't get the same kind of uh, quick detail that you might have been used to. It's uh, one of these little, you know, tales of the craft that, that uh, I just love to hear.
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, Eisner and Iger would grow and then they would supply comics to nearly every comic book publisher of the day, including Fox Comics, also known as uh, Fox Feature Syndicate, Fiction House, and Quality Comics. Will Eisner, however, uh, never really liked superheroes. So in 1939, Eisner was commissioned to create Wonder Man for Victor Fox of Fox Comics. (laughs) Now, Victor instructed Will to create a, quote, Superman-type character. He wrote and drew the first issue under the pen name Willis. Uh, Eisner said in interviews throughout his later life that he had protested the derivative nature of the character and the story. Uh, When subpoenaed after uh, national periodical publications, and we know that's the company that would evolve into D.C., they sued Fox, alleging Wonder Man was an illegal copy of Superman. Uh, In later years, Eisner claimed to have testified that this was so, (laughs) undermining (laughs) Fox's case. Uh, Eisner even depicts himself doing so in his semi-autobiographical graphic novel, The Dreamer. Now, a transcript of the proceeding, however, uncovered by comics historian Ken Quattro in 2010, indicates that Eisner, in fact, supported Fox and claimed Wonder Man as an original Eisner creation.
0: Interesting, because uh, the other story kind of floated for all the time until, and still pretty until much is accepted now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know about this, the finding in 2010, but it's definitely... Factual, the Eisner did support Fox in the case yep. and was asked to. I mean, this is not like an unusual thing. No. Rega- regardless, big shocker, uh, they lost anyway. And we don't hear too much about that Wonder Man, at least. And no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. So, uh, you know, one thing about the eisner Igo studio was that the office was actually a small apartment in Tudor City, which is on the eastern shore of Midtown Manhattan, uh, not far from Kipps Bay, if you know where that is. Uh, Eisner occupied the bedroom as his office and workspace. Everyone else populated the living room and the kitchen. Working together in close proximity, of course, meant they talked and told jokes all day. Now, Bob Powell, this is the guy born Stanley Pavlowski, was the only non-Jewish person working at Eisner Eiger. Indeed, had to be one of the only... One of the very few non-Jewish people working in comics at the time, probably, huh? Uh, but he was also very anti-Semitic. <laughs> and, and would jokingly jokingly refer to Eisner and Iger as a kike shop. Uh, there you go. And, and again, this is this is right before World War II, so you know tensions, and politics are in the air. You can imagine. Mm. Uh, one day, while going on a tear about all the employees in the office, Alex Bloom, who would later be, who would become well known later for joining the Classic Illustrated series. Uh, picked Bob up from his chair and punched him in the face. So that's the kind of working conditions that happened uh, at Eisner and Iger. I wish I could... Royal off story after story, but unfortunately that That's really all I got for you
1: <laughs> We'd have to check the human resources Records, it's I think probably yes, when they got
0: on there, they kept, <laughs> I think that was kept in the Toilet tank in the bathroom, so we'll check I it. think that's right
1: <laughs> now, uh, now just before Christmas in 1939 Eisner was approached by quality Comics publisher Everett M Quote: Busy, busy Arnold uh, Now Arnold said that newspapers Were looking to break into the superhero comic Book racket, and so Eisner recalls Busy invited me up for lunch one day and introduced me to Henry Martin, sales manager of the Des Moines Register and Tribute Syndicate, who said, The newspapers in this country, particularly the Sunday papers, are looking to compete with comic books, and they would like to get a comic book insert into the newspapers. Martin asked if I could do it. It meant that I'd have to leave Eisner and Iger, which was making money. We were very profitable at that time, and things were going very well. A hard decision. Anyway, I agreed to do the Sunday comic book, and we started discussing the deal, which was uh, that we'd be partners in the comic book section, as they called it at the time. And also, I would produce two other magazines in partnership with Arnold. This would be almost exactly like the first ever comic book, The Funnies, from 1929, as we discussed earlier.
0: Uh, That's right, so they kind of have made a little circle back to their uh, original origins, you know. Uh, Now, for most illustrators in the golden age, having a syndicated newspaper strip and even into the silver age was the ultimate goal. Uh, Eisner approached Iger about leaving the company, and Jerry Iger was surprised. He pointed out they were making a ton of money, and Eisner was sure to be drafted into the military soon enough anyway. The two agreed to part ways, Eisner selling his stake in the company to Iger for a paltry... $20,000. $20,000. Uh, now, the average salary in 1939 was $1,835. Yep. Yeah. So, if $20,000 is a small sum in this instance, they must have been raking in some serious cash. Uh, Iger would continue to package comics. We mentioned this as the SM Iger Studio and as Phoenix features through 1955. Uh, Eisner negotiated an agreement with the syndicate in which Arnold would copyright the spirit, but Eisner would own the character. He said... Written down in the contract I had with Busy Arnold, and this contract exists today as the basis for my copyright ownership, Arnold agreed that it was my property. They they agreed that if we had a split up in any way, the property would revert to me on the day that that, day that that happened. My attorney went to Busy Arnold and his family, and they all signed a release agreeing that they would not pursue the question of ownership. That would include the eventual backup features Mr. Mis- Mr. Mystic and Lady Luck, and will Figure very prominently into his life later on.
1: Mm-hmm. Now Eisner wanted to write a more hard-boiled, adventuring detective story. However, Busy Arnold wanted a superhero, so he put a domino mask on it. <laughs> <deckboard. laughs> Eisner said uh, They gave me an adult audience And I wanted to write better things than superheroes Comic books were a ghetto I sold my part of the enterprise to my associate And then began the spirit They wanted a heroic character A costumed character They asked me if he'd have a costume And I put a mask on him and said Yes, he has a costume Now, the mask was often drawn askew or fitting uncomfortably on the spirit's face to highlight Eisner's unwillingness to use it.
0: It's often peeling at the edges, you know. Yes. It doesn't (laughs) look like it fits quite well.
1: Now, the spirit would premiere on June 2nd, 1940. Uh, The spirit, an initially eight- and later seven-page urban crime fighter series, ran with the initial backup features Mr. Mystic and Lady Luck in a 16-page Sunday supplement, colloquially called The Spirit Section. It was eventually distributed in 20, uh, 20 newspapers with a combined circulation of as many as 5 million copies.
0: Right. So this was not small, 5 million, you know, eyeballs. is not a, or I guess 10 million eyeballs, really, if everyone's got two. It has two, you know, not, not small potatoes, but this was not a national thing, uh, which I didn't know, actually, until I looked into it. I thought this was more mm. of a huge, more countrywide thing but no it really was kind of located regional yeah primarily in the northeast going into chicago but you know there were people around the country go visit grandma go you know go on vacation they they caught it and it inspired a lot of people but it wasn't as pervasive as uh, i had thought when i first mm. Uh, Dove into this Eisner uh, stuff Anyway, Eisner worked with a few people On the spirit throughout its life Most consistently Abe Canickson Whose lettering style Eisner would crib later in his career But most notably Jules Pfeiffer Uh, Jules Ralph Pfeiffer was born January 26, 1929 In the Bronx, New York City He began drawing at the age of three Encouraged by his mother When Jules was 13 he got an art table And his mother enrolled him in the Art Students League Of New York to study anatomy Jules Pfeiffer loved comics from an early age because, as he put it, he wasn't a good enough writer or illustrator, but maybe by putting them together, he could make a living from it. He wrote, I came to the field with a more serious intent than my opiate-minded contemporaries. While they, in those pre-super days, were eating up Cosmo, Master of Disguise, Speed Saunders, and Bart Regan Spy, I was counting up how many panels there were on a page, how many pages there were to a story. Learning how to form, for my own use, phrases like deleted expletives, uh, marking for future reference which comic book hero was swiped from which radio hero, Buck Marshall from Tom Mix, the Crimson Avenger from The Green Hornet. And
1: then uh, when Pfeiffer was 16, he applied to work with Eisner. Uh, Will didn't like his artwork. But Jules knew so much about him personally, he decided he, quote, had to hire him as a groupie. (laughs) Uh, About Pfeiffer, Will would recall, he began working as just a studio man. He would do a racing cleanup. Gradually, it became very clear that he could write better than he could draw and preferred it. Indeed, he wound up doing balloons, i.e. dialogue. First, he was doing balloons based on stories that I'd create. I would start a story off and say, now here's why I want the spirit to do the following things. You do the balloons, Jules. Uh, gradually, he would take over and do stories entirely on his own, generally based on ideas we talked about. I'd come in generally with the first page Then he would pick it up and carry it from there In
0: 1947 Pfeiffer also attended the Pratt Institute For a year to improve his art style Eventually he would become a staff cartoonist For the Village Voice newspaper Based in Grants Village, New York City Which is where I remember him Best from his cartoons and that. Uh, we really could go on in great length about Jules Pfeiffer, probably do a whole episode. Didn't even mention that he put together one of the first comic book retrospectives, The Great Comic Book Heroes, Doubleday 1977, which is all the origins of Golden Age uh, superheroes. But the point is that he was trusted enough by Eisner to take over production managing of the spirit while...
1: Will was drafted into the Army. There he <laughs> And this was in uh, either late 41 or early 42. Uh, he was given six months to get his, get his affairs in order, and then he would report to boot camp. Uh, Eisner was eventually sent to the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland, where he got involved in the newspaper. Aberdeen was a training facility as well as a place to test ordnance, so uh, Eisner got involved in producing comics to train soldiers. On his way to Aberdeen, uh, Will stopped at the Holabird Ordnance Depot in Baltimore, Maryland, where a mimeograph publication titled Army Motors was put together. Eisner said, Together with the people there, I helped develop its format. I began doing cartoons, and we began fashioning a magazine that had the ability to talk to the G.I.s in their language. So I began to use comics as a teaching tool. And when I got to Washington, they assigned me to the business of teaching or selling preventative maintenance.
0: Yeah, the military folks that would put together maintenance manuals to that point, they didn't like eisner in on their operational silly cartoons. Uh, theirs was like a standard, mostly text manual with heavily labeled, line-drawn diagrams It's like what you get with any you know uh, thing you got to like, put together, you know, IKEA, yeah. IKEA. Uh, the problem with that <laughs> doesn't even have the text. Uh, a contest was arranged to see which way of communicating was more effective. Something like a something a motor from scratch. It was soon discovered that soldiers understood and retained the information from Eisner's comics far better from, st- from standard manuals, which should not be a surprise to anyone that has read comics. Uh, <laughs> It sounded very effective. So Eisner then created the educational comic strip and titular character Joe Dope for Army Motors and spent four years working in the Pentagon editing the ordnance magazine Firepower. He also drew all the original illustrations and cartoons peppered throughout issues of Army Motors. He rose to the rank of Warrant Officer, which is the rank above Captain, without requiring a certain test or attending Officer Candidate School. Will Eisner was honorably discharged from military service in 1946.
1: Now, back in comics, the spirit ended with the October 5th, 1952 edition. Will Eisner returned to it for a time, but by 1950, he was letting his ghost staff handle most of the art duties, and Jules Pfeiffer did a lot of the writing. The Comics Journal editor-publisher Gary Groth would write, By the late 40s, Eisner's participation in the strip had dwindled to a largely supervisory role. Eisner hired Jerry Grandinetti and Jim Dixon to occasionally ink his pencils. By 1950, Jules Pfeiffer was writing most of the strips, and Grandinetti, Dixon, and Al Wenzel were drawing them. Grandinetti penciled as a ghost artist under Eisner's byline, and said in uh, 2005 that before the feature's demise, Eisner had, quote, tried everything, uh, had me penciling the spirit. Later on, it was Wally Wood who drew the final installments.
0: Now, in 1948, while producing the Spurred, Will formed the American Visuals Corporation in order to produce instructional materials for the government-related agencies and any other businesses that would give him money. The company was based out of Connecticut near his new suburban home. Other clients of American Visuals Corporation included uh, RCA Records, the Baltimore Colts football team, and New York Telephone. He continued to work on Army Motors and its 1950 successor magazine, P.S., the Preventative Maintenance Monthly, until 1971. and That was his life career, folks. Uh, also illustrated an official Army pamphlet in 1968 and 1969 called the M1, M16A1 Rifle, specifically for troops in Vietnam about maintaining the tricky M16 rifle. And I just want to point out, too, that before he came in to do this uh, Preventative Maintenance Monthly, the Army did not practice preventative maintenance. Uh, no. The way the way they dealt with things was when something broke, now it was time to fix it. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't Eisner's idea, but it was somebody else and then his comic that brought to the idea, like, no, if you clean your gun regularly, you won't need, it won't jam on you as often when you <laughs> need it, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, it really was a new day in the Army or whatever. Things things had changed under his uh, Inking hand uh, He banked on the steady military contract Rather than risking himself on freelancing To very much what his mother would have wanted Right uh, yes. In this way he was somewhat apart from the mainstream comics world Which as we know was very volatile Throughout the 1950s uh, The Comics Code, Shuttering our many comics publishers Loss of sales to television We've mm-hmm. gone over this This is all. A lot of it's covered in our first episodes Of Weird Comics History about the Comics Code But it's we go through it all the time When we talk about it
1: Absolutely, it's hard It's hard not to No, It's, we, it's a to... huge thing for that decade yeah. uh, Now still, many comics pros Would work with Eisner on PS Magazine and We're going to name uh, we'll name some of them here We have Murphy Anderson He was born July 9th, 1926 He would pass away October 22nd, 2015 He briefly attended The University of North Carolina Before moving to New York City Seeking work in the comics industry He was hired by Jack Byrne As a staff artist at the comic book publisher Fiction House His first confirmed credit is a two and two third page nonfiction aviation feature called Jet Propulsion that was in Wings Comics number 48, uh, August 1944 cover date. And his first fiction feature was an eight page Suicide Smith and the Air Commander story that appeared in Wings Comics number 50. This is October 1944 cover date. Now Anderson continued doing comics work As well as illustrations for science fiction pulp magazines During his stateside postings While serving in the United States Navy And that was between uh, 1944 and 1945 Uh, He would design the costume of Adam Strange Uh, He frequently collaborated with Premier Superman penciler Kurt Swan Uh, The pair's artwork in the 1970s Came to be called Swanderson by fans Uh, In the early 1970s DC assigned Anderson among other artists to redraw the heads of Jack Kirby's renditions of Superman and Jimmy Olsen. Was, they, they feared that Kirby's versions were bit too different from the established
0: yeah. ones. And we know Kurt uh, Swan did some of those too, but uh, yes. all hands on deck when it came down to it.
1: <laughs> Kirby draws fast, as a lot of heads to realize. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, now in 1972, he drew Wonder Woman for the cover of the first issue of Ms. Magazine. Uh, then in 1973, he established Murphy Anderson Visual Concepts, which uh, provided color separations and lettering for comic books. He often hid his initials somewhere within the stories that he'd inked, and i uh, when he passed, he left behind two daughters and a son.
0: Yeah, and you gotta know, think that, you know, after he'd done those uh, highly technical wing commander stories with jet propulsion planes, sure. Eisenhower was like, You draw planes pretty well. You wanna go and draw something for the military? <laughs> uh, speaking of drawing for the military, here's somebody that I think we know, uh, a lot of us know, Joe Kubert, born September 18, 1926, to August 12, 2012. Here's a fellow that definitely could use his own episode, Chris. Absolutely. We know that, but we'll, we'll give mm-hmm. him a little bit of nod here. In his introduction to his graphic novel, Yassel, Huber wrote, I got my first paying job as a cartoonist for comic books when I was 11 and a half or 12 years old. $5 a page. In 1938, that was a lot of money. Anecdotal evidence suggests this was actually an apprenticeship at MLJ Publications, aching an early Bob Montana Archie strip. Author Dave Hadju who interviewed Kubert and other comic professionals for a 2008 book reported however that Kubert has told varying stories this varying versions of the story of his introduction to the comics business at age 10 sometimes setting it at the comic shop run by Harry A Chesler sometimes at MLJ however MLJ did not start operation until 1939 when Kirk Kubert was 13 so Somewhere in there, folks, he started working comics. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hubert attended Manhattan's High School of Music and Art. Uh, his first known professional job was penciling and inking the six-page story Blackout, starring the character Voltan in Holyoke Publishing's Catman Comics number no. 8, March 1942 cover. By the mid-1940s, Joe began coloring the quality comics reprints of future industry legend Will Eisner's The Spirit. At the end of nineteen fifty five, he was drawing for DC Comics exclusively, and in his time there, he and Gardner Fox created a new version of Hawkman in the Brave and the Bold number thirty four, February to March nineteen sixty one. Joe and Robert Kaniger introduced Enemy Ace in our Army at War number one hundred fifty one, february nineteen sixty five cover date, and by the nineteen seventies he was editing all of DC's war titles and providing all the covers. The Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art was founded in September 1976 by Kubert and his wife Muriel in Dover, New Jersey, and it continues... To crank uh, up comics professionals today
1: Right, yeah -hmm. Now we have Mike Plug. He was born July 13th, either 1940 Or 1942 (laughs) Uh, Why not Uh, After his parents divorced and sold the farm When Plug was about 10 or 11 years old His mother took Mike and his siblings To live with her in Burbank, California He entered the U.S. Marine Corps In 1958 And toward the end of his hitch He began working on the Corps' Leatherneck magazine Doing bits of writing, photography, and art he would leave the Marines in 1968. Around 1969, he began working on a Batman and Superman animated TV series at the Los Angeles studio Filmation, doing what he called cleanup work for other artists. The following season, he was promoted to layout work on those t- characters' series. Uh, now, moving to the Hanna-Barbera studio the following season, he worked on layouts for the animated series Motor Mouse and AutoCAD and uh, Wacky Races. As well as the first Scooby-Doo pilot Nothing spectacular though It was okay, it was a salary, you know (laughs) Uh, Now A Hannah Barbera colleague passed along a flyer He had gotten from writer-artist Will Eisner Seeking an assistant on the military Instructional uh, instructional publication P.S. The Preventative Maintenance Monthly Plug says I had been copying his work for years Because I was doing visual aids and training aids For the military for a long time
0: Hey It's a natural fit (laughs) Exactly, so Plug moved to New York City and remained with Eisner for just over two years As Plug recalled, Will had worked PS Magazine since about 1952 And the owners decided we've got to put it out to somebody else You know, it's like he's got this dynasty going So they said, well Will, you've got to do something You've got to either back out of it altogether or find some way of doing this So Will came up with the idea I picked up the contract and Will became the shadow partner and I moved across the street from Will's office into another office that he had. I don't know whether he had been leasing it, but we subleased it from Will. And we took over the book. And then it just got to be too much because it's not that profitable without a partner. But if you've got a partner, then it becomes totally non-profitable. He Mike did some work for Warren horror magazines, which helped him get a job penciling the Werewolf by Night Story in Marvel Spotlight number 2. February 1972, he helped launch the initial version of Ghost Rider in Marvel Spotlight number 5. August 1972, and then Plug returned to the movie industry and has worked in post-production on the movie Ghostbusters, uh, all that stuff you saw in cereal boxes are my paintings, he says, and with film director Ralph Bakshi on the animated features Wizards, The Lord of the Rings, and Hey, Good Lookin'. Mike was also production manager in uh, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker in 1988. He has storyboarded or done other design work on films, including John Carpenter's The Thing, Superman Two Little Shop of Horrors and the Unbearable Lightness of Being, and several Jim Henson Company projects, such as the films The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth.
1: Mm. Now, right around the time Eisner gave up PS Magazine in 1972, a new comic book fandom was emerging. Now, the spirit had also stayed in print over the years, sometimes with new covers or other artwork provided by Eisner. Uh, quality Comics handled the comic book format reprints at first, and then handed them over to Fiction House briefly in the early 50s. Then, Harvey Comics did two giant 25-cent collections. That was in 1966 and 1967. A new five-page spirit story set in New York City appeared as part of the July 9th, 1966 article about the spirit in the New York Herald Tribune. Also happened At the same time was the underground comics explosion When dozens or perhaps hundreds of comic book creators Found themselves with a new outlet outside of traditional distribution And uh, we spoke about that in very long form (laughs) During Weird Comics History episodes 12 through 16 We're going to talk about a fellow by the name of Dennis Kitchen here We talked about him then and we're going to talk about him again here he was born August 27, 1946, near Racine, Wisconsin. He attended the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where in 1967 he co-founded and served as art director for the humor magazine Snide. He also supplied cartoons. Uh, he took classes in journalism and started frequenting frequenting a local avant-garde coffee house called The Avant-Garde, hey. which uh, is a fitting name for an avant-garde place.
0: That's, that's pretty good. You guys, I, I like that for... I don't know if I would go there, but i got to respect the truth in advertising, right? The yeah, it's, said, it's on the team, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, In 1969, Kitchen decided to self-publish his comics and cartoons in the magazine Mom's Homemade Comics, inspired in part by Jay Lynch's B.J. Funnies and Robert Crumb's Zap Comics. This put him on the radar of Phil Sooling, who was already setting up some of the first comic conventions in the United States. Phil would also create the unique comic book retail situation known as Direct Market, But we're getting way off base for the Will Eisner story. That is a whole other weird comics history series that's been in the works Mm -hmm. for a long time. Uh, Dennis Kitchen relates that the underground comics I was publishing and sometimes drawing were about drugs and sex, and the Vietnam War and gender politics and angst. They were often full of graphic violence and acid trip imagery and the not infrequent depiction of genitals. They were my cartoonist generation's reaction against Frederick Wortham, and the hated comic code authority and straight society and middle class values, and all that was flawed or hypocritical in our culture. Our audience was the was other hip tuned in, radical long hairs and stoners. In short, we expected anyone balding and fifty something to be downright appalled by our comics. Instead, the living legend Will Eisner sought me out. He wanted to talk at that early convention because he was then and remained his entire life An intensely curious man who deeply loved the comics medium, who saw a still untapped potential, and was always looking for fresh perspectives and better mousetraps. He had vaguely heard, probably from Sooling, that underground cartoonists owned their own copyrights and trademarks, kept their own original art, had little or no editorial restrictions, and, for the businessman in Will, this was the most intriguing element, that we sold our comics on a non-returnable basis, and to non-traditional venues. And certain publishers, like myself, encouraged and instigated these practices, unheard of during his comics career. As we talked in in a private room at the convention hotel, I confirmed one by one the things that made him curious about this noisy new development in comic books. I did my best to squeeze in my own questions about the old days and the spirit, but he was sparse in those details. He was there to learn about new directions, not to reminisce.
1: Then from 1973 onward Dennis Kitchen's Kitchen Sink Press And James Warren's Warren Publishing Published extensive spirit reprints First as large black and white magazines The Warren part of the run Eventually having a color section And then as trade paperbacks Now the magazines often featured New Eisner covers Uh, The first ongoing series started by Warren And picked up eventually by Kitchen Sink Ran 41 issues from 1974 to 1983 Now two new stories were written during this period. We've got The Capistrano Jewels, which is a four-page story published in the second issue of the Kitchen Sink reprints that was in 1973, and The Invader, which was a five-page story for the Will Eisner Color Treasury that came out through Kitchen Sink Press in 1981. Now, issue 30 of the Kitchen Sink series, cover dated July 1981, features The Spirit Jam, which uh, with the script from Eisner and a few penciled pages plus contributions from 50 artists including Fred Hembeck, Trina Robbins, Steve Lealoa, Frank Miller, Harvey, Harvey Kurtzman, Howard Cruz, Brian Boland, Bill Kevich, John Byrne, and Richard Corbin. Uh, then in 1976, Tempo Books published The Spirit Casebook of True Haunted Houses and Ghosts. In it, The Spirit plays an EC comic style host, introducing true stories of haunted houses. Uh, the Spirit also makes a cameo in Vampirella number 50, was cover dated April 1976, in the eight-page story The
0: Thing in Denny Colt's Grave. Yeah, introduced... Quote unquote true stories of haunted houses, folks. So don't They weren't real? (laughs) Some of them. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you about it later, Chris. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dennis Kitchen and Will Eisner would become friendly and close business partners. Dennis became Eisner's original art dealer and published much of his forthcoming new work, which would be in a new format, quote unquote. More on that in a bit. In a recent interview, Dennis said the two of us were a picture of the generation gap. And I was not just a young cartoonist and publisher, I was an underground cartoonist and publisher. As Will noted years later, we both smoked pipes, but with different substances. A Contract with God and Other Tenement Stories is a graphic novel produced by Will Eisner and published by Baronet Books in 1978. Printed in sepia-colored ink, it includes a titular story and three other stories about life in the Lower East Side in the early 20th century. Will Eisner is credited with creating the graphic novel with this book, which we at Weird Comics History refute. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, This is not going to cause ripples, I don't think, through the industry, but just want to say this put this out there. He may have created the term, but the first graphic novel was It Rhymes with Lust in 1950 by St. John's Publications, written by Leslie Waller and Arnold Drake with art by Matt Baker, a story created for a book format that had words... And pictures, you know, words that f- followed the pictures. To me, that's the basic elements of the graphic novel.
1: Skeleton, yeah.
0: Yeah, they called it a picture novel, but it was functionally identical to a contract with God and subsequent works. Anyway, we're not here to diminish Eisner's accomplishments. I just want to say that if if ever you wanted to know our position on the matter, that's our position. But uh, I do recommend you read A Contract with God. <laughs> Uh, Eisner produced several graphic novels in his later life, mostly printed in sepia-colored ink for some reason Uh, Also all published initially by Kitchen Sink Press, often on newsprint unless otherwise indicated Uh, Life on Another Planet came out in 1983 Uh, Comics and Sequential Art in 1985 This would really be the first book to ever dissect the language of comics and promote it strongly as a form of literature
1: we had New York, the big city in 1986, also in 1986, The Dreamer, which is the closest we get to Eisner's autobiography, detailed his very early days of comics, and the Eisner-Eiger shop, with a names change to protect the innocent, of course. Yeah,
0: or then the guilty sometimes. <laughs> and the guilty. <laughs> uh, there was The Building in 1987, The uh, Life Force in 1988.
1: To the Heart of the Storm in 1991, Invisible People in
0: 1993. Dropsy Avenue in 1995, Graphic Storytelling and Visual Narrative in 1996, that's more on the science of comics and literature.
1: The Princess and the Frog in 1996, and A Family Matter in 1998.
0: Last Day in Vietnam in 2000, this is a few recollections from Eisner's time producing PS Magazine, and The Last Night in 2000.
1: Also in 2000, Minor Miracles, and then in 2003, Fagin the Jew.
0: They did the name of the game in two thousand three, and then uh, his final one was "The Plot: The Secret Story of the Protocols of the I- Elders of Zion," published by WW w. Norton in two thousand five. I mean, look at that, Chris. You know, they mm-hmm. there there are people working in comics twenty years don't have this many uh, titles to their under their Absolutely. belt, and he cranked these all out at the very end of his life. I just can't really can't get over it. Uh, many of these books, and and also another thing I, I got to say too, they run as far as story content. They go from everything from his like autobiographical reminiscence of the Lower East Side to like the craziest, most far out sci fi outer space story. Sure. They, they really they really are a weird cross section. Uh just him having fun with the medium. Uh, many of them have been reprinted in addition to collecting several stories into one and in other formats. Last year was a big Will Eisner reprint year. If you uh, are <laughs> the local comic shop, you might have seen a lot of his books appearing and more in force. Uh you'll have to figure it all out at the purchasing point, folks, we can't Can't help you too much there. There's a lot of different ways these things have been packaged and reprinted.
1: Absolutely Uh, Another great book by Will Will Eisner Is Will Eisner's Shop Talk That was published by Dark Horse Comics in 2001 Now this contains interviews between Will And some of comic book's greatest creators Including Jack Kirby, Joe Simon Gil Kane, Joe Cubitt Jack Davis, Neil Adams C.C. Beck, Milton Caniff Gil Fox, Harvey Kurtzman And many more Now Dark Horse also released Eisner Miller In 2005 And this is a book length transcript of a fairly common. Casual conversation between Will Eisner And Frank Miller It's also very enlightening yeah. Now in his later years Will taught at the School of uh, Visual Arts In New York City where he published Will Eisner's Gallery which is a collection of work By his students In 2002 Eisner participated in the Will Eisner Symposium in the, Of the uh, 2002 University of Florida Conference on Comics and Graphic Novel
0: well, you know, they didn't name it after him, so he kind of—I think—he felt obligated. He got to got show. a show, yeah. And of course, I just got a nod. You know that Will Eisner shop talk, especially even if you aren't interested in Will Eisner, and but you're interested in comics history. First of all, I'd wonder why, what happened, why <laughs> you, you interested to one and the, the other. But yeah. if, if that's a, still that book is is an invaluable resource. The things those guys talk about the early days of comics—they're uh, it's, in, yeah. it's incredible. It really is a really readable and really recommendable book. Uh, He died February 6, 2005 in Lauderdale Lakes, Florida of complications from a quadruple bypass surgery He was survived by a wife and son In the introduction to the 2001 reissue of A Contract with God Eisner revealed that the inspiration for the title story grew out of the 1970 death of his leukemia-stricken teenage daughter, Alice Next to whom he is buried Until then, only Eisner's closest friends were even aware of his daughter's life and death Eisner has been recognized for his work with the National Cartoon and Society Comic Book Award for 1967, 1968, 1969, 1987, and 1988, as well as its Story Comic Book Award in 1979 and its Rubin Award in 1998. He was inducted into the Academy of Comic Book Arts Hall of Fame in 1971 and the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1987, and of course the following year the Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards were established in his honor. And, uh, I just want to wrap this up with a little story about why I did, I don't know if I told you this story, Chris, I might've, but what gave me the idea to, to start doing this was, uh, a little over a year ago, I think I was at my comic shop and, uh, you know, at the counter talking to, uh, the, the guy behind the register. And, uh, I don't. I don't we were just talking about Will Eisner. I'm not sure what we were saying. And the guy who was next to, you know, by online said, you mean like the award? And uh, to to which not not only did I feel like it was a travesty that someone was in a comic shop that didn't know who Will Eisner was, but I had to think like, of course it's named after a person. Like, what do you think the Oscar? Do you think the Oscar is the name of the actual award? It's there's a person behind it, folks. Do a little research, you know. Like, they don't uh, they they didn't name it because he was a pet. So uh, I hope that that scratches anyone's Will Eisner ish itch if they uh, wanted to know more about the guy. I think that's a Pretty comprehensive look, obviously sure. Could always have gone, you know Well, well deeper, or sure. Also could have gone well lighter, I'm sure <laughs> We didn't do that we, we did what we do, but uh, if you've got Any uh, questions, comments You got any reminiscences about Will Eisner You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory At gmail.com uh, You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com Slash cosmic history uh, uh, Twitter at Cosmic tmail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie
1: I'm at Ace Comics.
0: See our weekly writings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and of course, I tell you every week, and even on this show, that you got to check Chris's personal blog, ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarth's.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week. Going on now several hundred days. What are we on now?
1: Seven hundred and sixteen.
0: We are. We are. Really building, stacking up those numbers on there Uh, Did Action Comics 100 today Which was one of my favorite issues I was really glad to see that But yeah, you gotta roll over there and see it every day It could be from any time, any era, anything Really worth checking out Very great breakdowns As I say, the next best thing to reading the actual issue
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have our show site here at Weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com Which, uh is a thing that exists in the world, but uh, doesn't get nearly as much love as it needs oh. to from either of us or anybody uh, <laughs> one of these days. Uh, we will include in our show notes for a Will Eisner bibliography, as well as some reference materials. If uh, we do get inspired to update that blog, they'll be there as well.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that much I can do. Huh? <laughs> we could we 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 move it over there. I mean, I, I you know, it's we are bad at that, folks. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the back end is... Is not our forte for the no. uh, the social media side of things, but we uh,
1: like the researching and the talking.
0: Exactly, and everything
1: else kind of goes over our
0: heads. If anybody wants an unpaid internship, they can be our social media <laughs> maven. I'll be fine with that. I'll give yeah, absolutely. you absolutely give you all the passwords <laughs> and have at it. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this time. Chris, got anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it weird historically. See ya. Have a banana. Hannah, try the salami, Tommy, give it the gravy, Davy. everybody eats when they come to my house, try a tomato plate too, here's cacciatore, dory, taste the bologna, Tony, everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes, hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen
1: alone. You better eat if it kills ya. Pass
0: me a pancake, man.